Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, Upholding the Truth, with a message titled, Qualified to Lead, Part 1. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. The story is told of a young man applying for a position in a firm. And when asked by the human resources manager what he expected his salary to be, the young man with no experience and with very little training quoted a number that was twice as high as that of the top salary in the firm. Well, the HR manager was stunned, but the young applicant explained. Look, he said, you've got to work more than twice as hard as anyone else when you don't know what you're doing. (laughs) Well, that's a very interesting line of reasoning, don't you think? But every single employer looks for people with qualifications and capabilities when hiring someone to do a very important job. And so how important do you think it is? when selecting elders or pastors or overseers, how important is it to choose wisely? Imagine what God looks for when he places people in leadership over the local church. But since the church is his body, and since the church represents Christ on the earth, and since the church is called upon to attract fallen and sinful men and women to faith in Jesus Christ, the calling and the qualifications needed to lead the local church is as high as it gets. You remember the bumper sticker that read, don't follow me, I'm lost too? You know, the sad reality is that unqualified leaders are lost. They don't know their task or where they are to lead God's people. There's no advantage to following them. Put an unqualified person into leadership and you'll destroy their spiritual life and the life of the church as well. It's a double tragedy. And that's why this text is for all of us, for we'll always be looking for more pastors. See, I made the decision in our study of 1 Timothy that we should do a little detour and examine the calling to lead. We found out what the job description was. The New Testament uses three terms to describe the local church leader. They're all terms to describe the very same office, although each term gives a different perspective of what the person in leadership should be doing. First, it uses the term elder, which refers to the leader's father-like role. It means he is a leader in his family and in his church. Second, the New Testament uses the term shepherd or pastor, which speaks of the leader's care for the people of God. And finally, the New Testament uses the term overseer, which speaks to the leader as decision maker, as one who sets direction and provides oversight of the people of God. And that's the calling and that's the job description. I've already pointed out that in our day, it has become common for many local churches to see elders and pastors as separate roles. You know, many people's thinking elders are lay leaders. They give oversight to the church and pastors, well, in their mind, they're full-time preachers and teachers and spiritual leaders. But of course, that is not the biblical way of thinking. Whether or not an elder is paid or not, that's not an issue. The issue is whether the pastor is biblically qualified to lead. It's a matter of qualifications, not of status or salary, that are the foundational issues. You know, we know that Jesus taught a different approach to leadership than has been found in the world. You remember that he said that among the Gentiles, their leaders lorded over one another. But that was not the way it was to be among the leaders of his movement. You know, we must assume then that the qualifications for leadership would be very stringent indeed. And so today, 
we want to talk about the qualifications for the task. You see, it's one thing to feel called. It's quite another to be qualified. You know, I have sometimes spoken to people who say they have been called from God. The inner sense of the call, however, doesn't mean that they're qualified. We must never think that a person's inner sense should overshadow the clear and objective qualifications that God has set out in his word. So let's see if I can tease that out some more. Paul began this section by saying that it was a noble thing to desire to be a pastor. Nothing wrong with the desire. Indeed, it's important to continue to say that because should the role of pastor no longer be as something that is desired, the church itself will suffer. Should people see the role as something less than desirable, the leadership of the church will be in disrepair. So let's read our text, 1 Timothy 3, 1-7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. See, it must have been natural to think that there must be something wrong with the system of leadership the Church of Ephesus had adopted. See, after all, false teaching and disunity and lack of proper leadership were rampant. But Paul denies there's anything wrong with the elder model of leadership. He wants to say that there's something wrong with the men who have been chosen to lead. It's a question of qualification, not a question of the model of leadership that our Lord presents to us. So let's begin where the text begins. The saying is trustworthy. Whenever Paul uses that phrase, he signals something important, even a great doctrinal truth. So what's the truth? Well, it's simply this. The responsibilities and leadership demands of an overseer is a good work, or it's a noble task. So from this verse, I want us to see what it takes to have and to keep great leaders. After all, if any local church is well-led, over the long haul, it will be a healthy church that is able to hold up the truth of God to a dying world. Now, I know there will be questions over this. Aren't all of us equal? You know, when Jesus said we weren't to lord it over one another, didn't that mean that we would all have equal status? So let's be clear on this matter. When it comes to our salvation and our standing before God, all of us, no matter who we are, were saved by grace and grace alone. See, in that sense, there's level ground before the cross. Unworthy of mercy, bow down with sin, we've received grace through that one sacrifice of Jesus. And yet, God appoints leadership in his church, and he wants leaders to lead. And that must be clear. Leadership is a great blessing to the church. So what does it take to have and to keep great leaders? Well, first, we're to honor the office of elder. Hold it in high esteem. Now, when I say that, two things come to mind. The first is a word that I got from my own dad, whom I, you know, loved and honored highly. You know, when I was a young man and sensed the call of God to go into pastoral ministry, my father did everything he could to discourage me. 
So let me defend my dad for just a moment. See, he'd seen all sorts of pastors unjustly criticized, fired from their jobs, and even a few become bitter men and unable to serve Christ in the future. And he was afraid for his son. He thought I had a too sensitive personality and that the job was harsh and cruel and uncaring. Now, some of you might feel exactly that way. Instead of viewing this as a position of great honor, you do anything not to get your son to do this, and you don't esteem the office. Rather, you should view a calling on your son to be pastor to be a great and high calling, something that you would encourage. So do you. And the second thing that comes to mind is the call of an elder in a local church. See, I believe that we should encourage our young men in faithfulness And in just a little while, we're going to talk about what that looks like. So if we want to ensure that there will be great elders or pastors in the future, as there have been in the past, we must all begin to honor the office highly and speak of it with respect and know that God honors this office. Now, there's a second way in which we'll have to have and keep great leaders. We're going to have to place only men of honor in the office of pastor or elder. Look again at the first half of verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. See, most Bible teachers look at this first qualification as the key heading under which everything else falls. In other words, the remaining 14 qualifications are descriptions of the man who is beyond reproach. To be beyond reproach means to be above just criticism. Notice, I didn't say he must be above any criticism. Jesus was criticized and with vigor. So were the apostles and so has every single Christian leader in history. If we were to look for people of whom no one speaks negatively, you'd have to have someone who's never actually accomplished a thing in his life. Instead, Paul means that the elder must be the kind of man against whom no one can justifiably lay a charge, saying that this man is unfit for the office. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom, well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315. Or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult. It was Charles McKay who once wrote, You have no enemies, you say. Alas, my friend, the boast is poor. He who has mingled in the fray of duty that the brave endure must have made foes. If you have none, small is the work that you have done. You've hit no traitor on the hip. You've dashed no cup from perjured lip. 
You've never turned the wrong to right. You've been a coward in the fight. See, those who want a Christian leader who has no critics will find the wrong kind of leader. Consider the criticisms that were laid against our Lord and Savior. He eats with sinners, they said. He's demon-possessed. He says he's going to tear down the temple and build it up in three days. On and on it went. You know, it might be of some interest to do a little review of the criticism of Jesus after the New Testament era. Celsus was a second-century Greek philosopher, and he was also a fierce opponent of Christianity. In his attack on Jesus, Celsus argues that Jesus came from a poor Jewish village. He said his mother was a poor country girl who earned her living by spinning cloth. He had no basis for a proper education, and Celsus went on to say that Jesus performed his miracles by sorcery. He said Jesus taught his followers the worst of habits, which he said was begging for money. And the criticisms went on and on. Or I could take you to a more recent date, the 19th century. Friedrich Nietzsche, who thought that Jesus was on the side of the weak and thwarted the law of evolution, and so sided against the progression of the human race. Or we could look at more modern scholars, but the point is that Jesus has been the subject of withering criticism for 2,000 years. If when we say that an elder must be above reproach, and by that we mean that he can't be the subject of criticism, well, I'm afraid we're looking for someone most unlike Jesus. Or think of the criticisms against Paul. They said he was too weak to be a leader, and oh yes, they said he is impressive in his letters. No one can deny that. But he's unimpressive when you meet him face to face. They said he was a bad leader. Let me say it again. If you think that being above reproach means that you're looking for a leader about whom there are no rumors or bad reports, well, I suspect you've got the wrong idea. Above reproach is meant to mean above legitimate or factual approach. So consider the example of Daniel. Remember that a group of men in Persia wanted to take him down and they hated him. They're looking for a scandal or a skeleton in his closet that once exposed would end his political career and his power with the king. And so they began to dig around and ask questions and talk to people and check all the decisions and words that had been written by him. And and here's what they concluded. And I'm reading Daniel 6, verse 5. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Now, of course, they could have made up all kinds of complaints. They might have said, Look, Daniel's got a bad attitude towards kings in the past. When a young man, he refused to eat the king's food. He also inspired his friends not to bow before the king's statue. You know, that amounts to treason. He's never far away from treason. Here's a man who can't be trusted. But it just so happened that King Darius had a reputation of checking out the charges. Now, he would have investigated it thoroughly. And that, by the way, that's a model for us today, a model for all churches that they should embrace. Gossip, rumor, false charges, all of these are the devil's tool to create chaos in a local church. And if the local church becomes a purveyor of false charges, or if a local church gets comfortable with rumors and gossip, it becomes almost impossible to find out if a man is above reproach. But above reproach must mean above legitimate reproach. When a charge is made, has it been thoroughly investigated? Now, how can I say all of these things with such confidence? How can I know for certain that Paul actually means above legitimate reproach? 
Well, because if you skip ahead to 1 Timothy 5.19, we're going to hear Paul saying, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Not two or three rumor mongers, but rather two or three who have credible testimony to bring against a man. Now, that must also mean that when a charge is brought, it's not swept under the carpet. You know, recent experience has taught us that that's sometimes the case. We've all heard about sexual scandals against Christian leaders only to find out that for years a board has protected this leader from those who bore witness against him. In one case, the board even oversaw the paying off of witnesses to buy their silence. It's disgraceful. It fails to be even slightly interested in whether the leader is above reproach. For them, the talent or attractiveness of their leader or his gifts, I mean, all of that is more important than the command to be above reproach. But it's also disgraceful when there's a criticism against a Christian leader and the rumor, the innuendo, and the gossip is allowed to carry on with, without ever carefully investigating it objectively, and then to rule either in favor of or against that Christian leader. See, if no one ever defends Christian leaders against gossip, expect more leaders to simply resign in defeat and move on. I know of one ministry that seems dedicated to destroy one leader after another. And in many cases, their criticisms have been legitimate. But why will they not celebrate the good leaders? Why will they not encourage them on? See, in today's climate, it seems that it's open season on leaders. So let's see how many we can take down. And in consequence, every leader is looked upon with a jaundiced eye and an air of suspicion. And in consequence, the office of elder is not held in high honor because, at least so it's thought, who wants it? It's just a place that allows others to destroy you at will. So stay away. I return again to Paul's words, which must be held in balance of all the other words in Scripture. To be above reproach is to be above those kinds of sins for which a person should be rightly canceled out from pastoral ministry. So stop for a moment. Yes, Christian leaders all sin. That's because, as John reminds us in 1 John 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. There is no one who is free of blame save Jesus. And so if you want to discover that any Christian leader has clay feet, if you scratch far enough, you'll soon discover sins, sins of pride or lack of faith in given areas, sins of not caring for others in the way they should. And we should know the difference between those sins and the sins that cancel out one from pastoral ministry. Above reproach must then mean above the kind of reproach that would make one inadmissible to the office of pastor. But how do we know what those sins are? Well, let's state the obvious. Adultery and sexual sin do cancel a man out. We'll read more about that tomorrow, but we need to consider the details. We might also point out that the sins of greed and the using of money to line one's own pocket, that cancels a man out. Indeed, the church leader who is a lover of money is a church leader who must be removed from office. But having said that, it is important that church leaders don't have to endure one witch hunt after another. In today's climate, suspicion may seem like the wise choice, but know this. When this becomes the culture of leadership, expect no one to see it as a noble task. Tomorrow, we'll look at the 14 characteristics that Paul wants to see in leaders, elders, or pastors. 
And we do know that Paul wanted Timothy to oversee the process, making sure that only those pastors were chosen who showed the kind of characteristics that define the man of God. Now, since it was Timothy who oversaw the practice, and since Timothy is no longer available to oversee the practice today, it's important that church leaders, as well as entire congregations, take seriously the importance of studying 1 Timothy 3, 1-7. Rather than holding a popularity contest or being mesmerized by someone's giftedness, I think it would be wise for any church to regularly go over this list again. And that might happen in a series of sermons on the passage or perhaps in a series of Bible study programs in homes or something else. But understand this. The church of Jesus is constantly looking for more leaders. All leaders will retire and die, and the church will grow and require more leaders than ever before. But I can hardly imagine a time when the church is not on the lookout for more leaders. And the message she must maintain is simple. If someone seeks the office of overseer, it is a noble task. We need to communicate that our pastors, our overseers, our elders are honored. Yeah, the work is demanding. Yeah, it is required that we be involved in sacrifice and we must fight against our own sin. But we must also communicate that the Church of Jesus Christ will honor the leaders that God has set over us. Thanks so much, John. You know, I think it's true to say that we can be tough on pastors, even to the point today where many are leaving the pastorate. What does someone entering ministry need to understand and consider? Well, you know, I've often thought about this. You know, Ben, I've been in pastoral ministry for 35 years. You have as well for many years. Um, And as I think about the years that I've spent in ministry, I, I can think about all of the people that have left the ministry and are no longer in it. And if, if I were to go back and say, what should have been told me before I began? And I think the thing that should have been told me is that it's going to cause me to suffer more than I would have imagined. And I should learn how to suffer in such a way that doesn't look like I'm constantly a victim. And at the same time, I'm not embittered, but continue to be loving even to those who have not been loving towards me. And I think that might be a place where we need to instruct new upcoming pastors. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Upholding the Truth, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. An integral goal of this ministry is to ensure that Bible teaching you can trust is available to as many people in as many places in as many ways as possible. That's why we emphasize a diversity of unique Bible teaching and engagement resources available through a variety of mediums, radio, online, free mobile applications, YouTube, just to name a few. Providing these resources ensures that anyone who desires to hear the gospel can do so at their convenience and at no cost. We're grateful for the incredible opportunity that's ours to share the gospel in your community, across Canada and around the world. But this couldn't happen without like-minded friends, partners and donors across the country. This Thanksgiving, we say thank you for blessing us and in turn we pray that this ministry continues to bless all those searching to know Jesus better. 
For more information about Back to the Bible Canada or to offer a gift of support, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.